Happy Friday, everybody. Uh, apologies for the bit irregular uh, posting schedule this week. Um, a lot of shenanigans were going on at work last week. Good shenanigans, but shenanigans nonetheless. And so that's made this week basically the week to dig out from um, everything that I wasn't doing last week. So I wanted to maybe take a, a bit of a detour this morning. One of the things that I have the joy of doing on a regular basis is I get to talk about talk about ethics with students. And so this semester, I'm embarking on kind of a new, uh, a new challenge for myself. I'm co-teaching a course in medical bioethics. And I'm co-teaching it with uh, a colleague over in chemistry who runs the, she's like the head of the health, pre-health science profession. So any and all students who are doing PT or OT or pre-med or speech pathology, uh, they all wind up in her office as she helps to mentor them through that process of becoming uh, good health professionals. And she always steers them into this class, thankfully. Because we live in a society that doesn't really know how to think morally um, at all. <laughs> so it becomes pretty clear once I, once I begin talking with uh, 18 to 21-year-olds that they have a lot of intuitions, but they don't have a lot of grammar or language for understanding their intuitions or for talking about, um, talking about moral questions. So this is a class that uh, a colleague of mine uh, here at ACU normally teaches Vic, I don't know if you're even, you ever listen to this, but if you do, I um, hope you're doing well in Oxford. So anyway, Vic is out uh, touring the, the countryside of Oxford this semester. And so um, he, I got to fill in for him this semester, and it has been a blast. So I don't normally teach undergrads these days, and so it's been a lot of fun to do that. And it's been a lot of fun to stretch out and to try to teach ethics in a in a broadly non-theological setting. Uh, like, so a lot of the students come from uh, religious backgrounds or consider themselves Christians, but not all of them. And as pre-health professionals, like it's not the expectation that they're going to be bringing uh, a theological framework to bear on their work. So the class is broadly pitched on helping them to kind of have a basic moral grammar to which they can then uh, they can help kind of navigate uh, navigate their world. So it's been really interesting, and so I'm going to talk a bit about kind of that process. And hopefully, this will also give a sense of what it might mean, not just to talk about. So this isn't like niche bioethics kind of stuff, but what would it? What does it look like to kind of begin where we? I think most of us begin with respect to our ethics that we have these intuitions, we have these kind of gut feelings about rightness and wrongness. And what is, how do we kind of move beyond that? I think most of the time, and I find this to be true, not just with respect to this particular bioethics class, but most of the time when I wind up talking about moral issues in Christian circles as well, um, one of a couple of places is usually the default starting point. Either and this is, I find this to be, I found this to be true as we began the semester in the bioethics class. Either they have kind of an intuitive sense, like a gut reaction to a moral question. They sense that there is something right or wrong about it, but they don't really have a reason for it. 
they don't really have kind of a vocabulary that they can reach for or, or even arguments that they can marshal. They just have like a gut feeling about it. It's kind of intuitionism. Or they think about moral questions in terms of the outcomes. So they're just straight up consequentialists, but not really. I'll get to that here in a second. Or they begin by looking for some sort of binding rule, right? They're reaching for something like a thou shalt or thou shalt not that will clearly and unambiguously tell them what they are to do in situation X. So most people, I think, begin in one of those three places. Either begin with like a sense of intuition and don't really know what to do with it, or they begin, they're they're kind of operating out of a a pure consequentialist um, framework that we're going for the greatest amount of happiness in or the greatest outcome and for sometimes for the greatest number of people, sometimes just for myself. Um, and so that's how we make kind of determinations. We kind of do the, the pro con list, the thinking about where I want to get and what kind of actions will help me get there. Um, or we just, res- or we resort to something like a command, right? Those are kind of one of the three basic defaults, I think. So, how do we begin to sort through this, and how do we begin to move um, move beyond this? So, for Christians, part of the part of the conundrum is that when we start to look at the second and third of those, I'm going to set aside an intuition just for the time being. We'll probably come back to it. Most of the time, when we think about like what does the moral life look like, Scripture actually gives us quite a number of the first two. Um, it gives us lots of scenarios in which uh, if you want to get to outcome X, then you need to do actions Y in order to get there. And if you don't do actions Y, then you're not going to get to outcome X. So, or if you do a certain thing, then something else is going to happen. And that's just kind of the way it is. One of my favorite proverbs here is, uh, if a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. This is like consequentialism, this is pretty, this is like negative consequentialism, right? That if you do this certain behavior, then this is going to be your outcome. And it's going to be a negative outcome, but, you know, cause and effect do, do, do certainly apply here. Maybe a better version um, would be something like you find in Deuteronomy when God says to the people, I set, you, I set before you life and death. And here's what death looks like, and here's what life looks like. And if you want life, this is what you do, right? You pursue it in this in this kind of way. So scripture has a lot to say about kind of these sorts of things. Usually we find them in uh, what are called the apodic, the apodictic law, um, the if-then sort of uh, scenarios within the law where it is laid out before us in a pretty clear fashion that this is the action and this is where it goes. We find it in the Proverbs. We find it um, in the Prophets. We find it sometimes uh, sometimes in the New Testament, but not as frequently. Um, similarly, with the, second t- with the third type that we just mentioned, the command-based one that I think a lot of us reach for in terms of sorting out moral questions, um, plenty of examples to draw from here. With respect to commands, very straightforward. Uh, the Decalogue is kind of ground zero for this, that we are given straightforward, unambiguous 
uh, commands a bit more on that later because it's maybe not as, uh, maybe some of that is not quite as straightforward. But at least the form of it um, resonates with us in terms of clarity. Do this, don't do this. Love the Lord your God. Don't worship idols. Don't create graven images. Uh, honor your parents. Don't murder, right? Fairly straightforward, cut and dry. So where all of this comes together is that even when you have something as straightforward as a, uh, a command like don't murder, it begs all sorts of questions of implementation. So how do we move, you know, so it, it in other words, even if you want to go for something as straightforward as uh, don't murder, it begins to beg a lot of questions, not only with respect to um, the content of fulfilling that command, i.e. what counts as murder, but also um, how do we how do we implement that? How do we get to the to this place of not murdering? What all is involved with the fulfilling of this command to not murder? So though we might want to appeal to something as straightforward as don't murder and just kind of align all of the moral life with a command, very quickly we find ourselves right back in the place of uh, the consequentialists who are very comfortable asking in terms of like how to, you know, getting to the outcome and what sorts of actions need to be implemented in order to get to a good outcome. Um, likewise, for the consequentialist, it's not as it's not as if that's all you need. Um, so, the example here. So, there's kind of a, a philosophical example that I that I draw from sometimes. So, say you have this amazing city, and we want to uh, we want to really like enjoy the city. It's a city that is perfect. Like, there's no trash on the street. Everybody has what they need. Uh, the sky is blue the temperature is like mid 70s all the time it's just like paradise on earth now the trick is that all this is made possible because you have a room in a dark basement in one of the buildings where you have a nine-year-old child that is tortured endlessly and that's the condition right you get to have all of these amazing things but under the condition that this one kid gets endlessly tortured is that a good, like, you want to get to this good outcome, is this an acceptable thing to do in order to get to the outcome? And most consequentialists would say, well, no, of course not. Why would, the, that's that's terrible. But it produces all these amazing effects, which tells me immediately that most consequentialists are not pure consequentialists. They're not purely um, terrible people that think only in terms of efficiency. But they do have kind of some, some non-negotiable, some abiding uh, moral rules, some thou shalt and thou shalt not, which are implicit to them. Maybe they're not even kind of don't know how to fit all this together. Um, but they have some commands. They have some kind of unbreakable, uh, unbreakable rules here. And so our intuitions don't really help us out because we have these kind of competing things. Sometimes we're, we're thinking in terms of how we proceed toward, an, toward a goal. But at the same time, we know that not all not all ways to get to that goal are appropriate. And we maybe, maybe we don't even know kind of where this sense of kind of thou shalt and thou shalt not comes from, but we still have those things baked into us. So then at that point, when I, after kind of helping them work through these first two options to help 
help them see that it's not quite all just consequentialism. It's not, not all what's called deontology, the um, obligations and commands. That we need a way of being able to sort through these things, and we need a way of being able to talk about uh, what binds the moral life together, that maybe we need to do more than talk about, say, the rules that are in place or the reasoning process that's in place, but about the moral agent themselves. Who is doing the deciding? Who is doing the obeying? And that gets us into a different way of thinking about ethics, that of virtue. So virtue ethics, broadly put, deals with issues of character and kind of the kind of person that you are when you are um, a moral being, that to be a moral, to, to, to engage in the moral life is not just a matter of uh, making rational calculations toward the best possible end, and not just about obeying a command for its own sake, but about the kind of person you are becoming. And that we become these virtuous people in part through being able to exercise our moral faculties, i.e. making decisions and kind of engaging in the weighing of goods. And we become moral people by um, learning how to, you know, fulfill our fulfill our obligations and how to um, how to sort out who has the authority to command us to do certain things and who doesn't. Um, that all of those things, that the process of reasoning and the process of learning how to follow through with our obligations, contributes to us becoming the kind of people who are able to do those things well. So um, there we are. Our intuitions usually try to, we usually have a sense that intuitively that like the first two are in place. And sometimes we get locked into those things, not realizing that we really need a third category here, that of virtue. That ultimately the, vir- the, the moral life is not about rational calculation and it's not about fulfilling obligations for their own sake, but it is about the kind of people that we become as we engage in the first two things. So for Christian ethics, this shouldn't, and this is where I think this all comes back. This is, this is kind of how I work this in um, the bioethics setting that for them as, as medical professionals, it's not enough for them to simply know the rules and it's not simply enough to um, abide by the commands, but they need to be people who are able to do these things wisely and well that when they're dealing with patients, they can't just um, they can't just treat patients as if they are cogs in a decision-making tree, and hope for the best. And they can't just um, do the same thing for every single person. They can't just kind of follow the command, irrespective of what it is doing to a particular person. So, in some ways, this is appropriate. Kind of making the shift now to kind of what all this has to do with the Christian life. If this is the if we live in a world which is created by God, then it comes with certain conditions of behavior and also certain ways of being that are appropriate to being in that world. Um, so it involves then things like learning how to navigate that that complex world well, things which the consequentialists want to help us do. And it also involves uh, co- being coherent, like they're having some coherence between who we are and the world in which we live, that there are certain behaviors that are appropriate to that and certain behaviors that are not, 
the deontologists, the command-based folks. Um, and all of this is in service of us like living out our lives in the world well, being the kind of creatures and flourishing as the kind of creatures which we were meant to we were meant to be. Um, the way of virtue. So it all kind of ties together for the Christian life. Now, in the medical setting, a lot of this gets a lot. Of, so it's all fine and good. We're having in, in my bioethics class, we're, we're talking about all this. They get it. They want to be, you know, virtue. They hopefully want to be not just kind of good technicians, but they want to be like virtuous people. They want to be people of character who are able to know how to follow the rules and the way in which those rules should be implemented, right? They want to be wise. So all of this kind of gets derailed then for them, I think, when it gets to questions of, of autonomy. So autonomy in bioethics is kind of one of the key principles that when we're talking about medical decisions, it should be something that a person understands, an action that they themselves intend, and that they are not being compelled to do it by either external forces or internal forces. And that gets kind of complicated with all sorts of, we can kind of go down that rabbit hole maybe another time, kind of how autonomy works in a medical setting. But that's kind of the basis. When you walk into a, when you walk into a physician's office and they offer you a treatment for something that is wrong with you, you want to have a sense that you know what they're actually describing. You want to know, and you want to intend the course of action. And you don't want to be compelled to do it by, say, someone other than yourself. And you you don't want to have like any internal kind of restrictions on you choosing that course of action. You want it to be something that you willingly and freely undertake. So in the medical setting, at least in the discussions of bioethics, like autonomy gets positioned over against dependency, that we're expected to be autonomous beings all the time, except in those extreme circumstances when we can't, and then we let someone make the decision for us. This is where as Christians, I think we're able to we we have to kind of work beyond this um, and think of autonomy and dependency not as two poles, but rather as dependency is kind of the backdrop of our lives at all times. That sometimes within our lives, we function in more or less autonomous ways, but we never function completely autonomously. Um, this is something I try to convey to my students with limited success sometimes. That we always, you know, even when you walk into the physician's office, you don't walk in as a blank slate. There are going to be things that you don't understand, even if you, um, even if you are, even if the doctor fully explains what's going to happen. There are things which you think that you intend, which you might be intending more than you intended. So if I undertake certain procedure, I might be intending to get well from whatever ailment I have, but I'm not intending maybe some of the side effects that I might have. Uh, internal restraints against taking a course of action that I'm not even aware of. Um, I might be a mystery to myself. I might have kind of like aversions to doing certain things for reasons I'm not even fully aware of. And that we never operate in a, in a way which um, is free of external constraints. I don't have endless money. I don't have endless time. Um, I am a f the father of two and the spouse of one. And so that's an external constraint on the kinds of treatments that I'm going to choose and the courses of action that I will take. Um, we never have full autonomy. And it's kind of a myth, I think, to presume that we do. So I try to help them see that most of our lives actually should be better characterized as the, we're these dependent kinds of beings who are occasionally more or less 
autonomous, but we're never free to act as we wish. Um, we are only truly free when we are uh, people of character and pursuing and pursuing those lives of virtue. Um, so that we see kind of the actions that we partake in, we take of in the world as contributing to our character and to our virtue, to being able to live as the kinds of creatures that we were meant to be. Um, and that sometimes that means not undertaking a certain course of action just because we could. Sometimes it means uh, obeying things that we would rather not obey, but doing it anyway, because it contributes to us becoming better humans. Uh, not just longer living humans. So this is, I think, the hardest part for one. So I, these are a lot of lessons that I'm kind of I'm, I'm learning as I'm teaching the bioethics is that the grain of thinking with a purely consequentialist mode or with a purely command-based mode, these are pretty ingrained things. And it's pretty hard to get people out of that moving toward what I think is a is a way that incorporates all of that but uh, but but points us not toward just doing a thing for its own sake, but doing it because it helps us to be the kinds of creatures that we're meant to be. Um, that when we obey the commands that we're given to us in Scripture, it contributes to not just, you know, you're not just checking a box, but it's contributing to you being the kind of person that you were created to be. When we exercise our reason well and um, and reason morally about which approach we should take versus another approach, um, that the good we should be seeking is not just kind of temporal happiness, but it should be uh, our it should be like the fullness of our our goodness before God. It should be in pursuit of us becoming better people. So anyway. Um, Hopefully this this way forward is of use to you. Um, I find that teaching ethics is challenging, but ultimately really rewarding. Most of us have kind of an intuitions that we follow, fragmentary ways of trying to pull things together. And we sometimes I think we just want to collapse into one or the other, that our moral, our moral lives is just a bunch of decisions that we have to make and try to choose between things, or that our moral lives is just following commands irrespective of the outcomes. Um, but I think that the Christian moral life is actually much more rich than that. It's about becoming the kind of people that we are meant to be through the ways that we, you know, through the choices that we make and through the things that we do, even if we don't feel like doing them. Um, but that's, that's kind of where, that's the ultimate stakes here. Anyway, Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for letting me kind of ruminate on what I'm learning as I'm teaching this bioethics class and what it, how it might hopefully cash out in terms of how we as Christians develop our moral sensibilities um, and tie some things together within the scriptures that seem to be maybe competitive with one another, um, but which all culminate together, I think, in something like the Beatitudes, that we are called to be these kinds of people people of character, people who are blessed, um, and that that is a difficult thing. Um, that is difficult, but I think that it is what we have been given to be by God. Happy Friday to everyone. Hope you have a good weekend.